um, kind of taking that time um, aspect out of it because it, that can be a barrier. You can be like, oh my gosh, to meal plan for the entire week, that's going to take me so long. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't need to. It takes a 10 minutes. Like just swap in a few things, pull a few recipes that you have saved. Boom, you're done. Hey everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Entering Motherhood, a podcast dedicated specifically to new moms going through this amazing journey in life. I'm your host, Sarah Bilger, a postpartum nutritional coach slash mechanical engineer. And as always, I'm so excited to be here with you and share all the information I've been lucky enough to obtain since becoming a mom. In this episode, we talk with Stephanie about how to establish healthy habits around the way that we eat, her own story of entering motherhood, and what to do when we have a picky eater on our hands. Before this episode begins, I just want to say thank you so much for listening, and I also just want to talk about an event we have coming up starting on November 1st. This event is for mamas who are either currently trying to conceive, are pregnant, or in the early postpartum stage, and may have some trauma in their life that they're looking to release. We go through 30 ways and 30 days of how to heal your trauma. You'll get a workbook, you'll get put in a group of other mamas who are feeling similar emotions, and you'll listen to the daily mini episodes of the podcast that correspond to this unique experience. I hope that you know that you are not alone in this and that you deserve this time to heal. My hope is for you to become more aware of yourself and the strength that you have in motherhood. Allow yourself the time to look deeper and heal so that you can be more present and look at motherhood in a whole new way. If you want more information on this, please go to the Entering Motherhood website or feel free to reach out to me with any questions. And with that, let's get this episode started. Hello and welcome to Entering Motherhood. I'm so excited to have you here and get started with this conversation today. So how about you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yay. Hi, I am Stephanie Mahachek, and I am a board certified clinical nutritionist, a certified nutrition specialist, and a member of the American Nutrition Association. And I am the owner of a company called Food Factor Nutrition, uh, where I do private and small group coaching around nutrition and nutrition habits and all things food and wellness. Awesome. Yeah, I'm also a mom of four, so I absolutely love the concept and the episodes of this podcast that I've listened to. It's so valuable what you're doing and, and the information that you're sharing for everybody, especially moms who just need that support at any stage, no matter where you're at. You just need that support and as many resources as you can. So um, I love, 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 love this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> That's always like nice to hear. <laughs> So how about you go ahead and kind of tell us our like your journey of where you've come, like being a mom of four and um, everything that you do as far as like nutrition, where did that all start? Yeah, well, so to step back and say I wanted four kids was never the case. <laughs> I love them dearly, um, but that was never in my plan. I thought maybe two would be it or what have you, but um, but we're at four, so and, and four and final, so we're we're done with four. Um, but 
the the whole journey around nutrition kind of started um, my undergrad. Well, first of all, to back up, I've always been pretty active in sports and everything growing up. And, you know, growing up in the 90s, it was the era of no fat, low fat. And that was the information that we were receiving. And, and that was actually a very critical time just looking back on it. Uh, developmentally and all of that, because that was my teenage years. And that is the time where you have all these other factors that weigh in on your health and body image and all of that things, coupling that with information from the media on no fat and low fat is good. And all of those low fat food options were around. And I was definitely making my mom buy no fat cheese. And like, how disgusting is that looking back on it? Like, it's just so gross to think about like what those chemicals are. Um, but that was the time. And that was the information that was coming through. And that's what I learned. And that's what I implemented. And that looking back now, that I'm in my late thirties, um, that was the most unhealthy I've ever been in my life as a, as that teenage years in the nineties, just because of the amount of chemicals that were coming in and the, the impact that it had on me. I mean, I was granted as teenage years, you are going through a lot of hormonal changes. Lots of things are going on, but I definitely did not support my body at that time. And that was a completely kind of media fed. And that was what we learned. Um, so going through my undergrad, I have a degree in exercise science. So I was really interested in athletes and fitness in general. I became a personal trainer right out of college. So I wanted to go down that route. And it wasn't until I was a health coach for, I mean, I turned into a health coach for about 11 years, <laughs> but it was really working with other people more of like with the fitness mindset, but helping them to establish healthy eating habits and healthy patterns. And I worked with people on quitting smoking and lowering blood pressure and all of this. And everything always came back to their nutrition and what they were or were not eating. And it, you know, luckily at the time, my company offered ongoing education and I was able to get a master's degree in, in clinical nutrition. And that really was like the gate opening for for me and everything that I wanted to learn and everything that I kind of knew about wellness. And it really was the the point that I needed and the information that I needed at that point to just kind of tie everything together. I mean, looking ahead now, it's just every condition, every symptom, every condition can really be tied back to the nutrients that you're intaking or the chemicals that you're intaking or the things that you're not getting enough of that your body needs to function, um, sometimes even down to a cellular level. And that really can be the root cause of so many conditions and symptoms that we have. So um, that kind of is the background info on why I switched my business name to Food Factor Nutrition is because food is the ultimate factor in everything, in your health, in your life, in your happiness. So um, that's kind of the reasoning behind some of my journey into the nutrition space. And I mean, honestly, I wouldn't change anything. I'm glad I went through the low fat, no fat era, because looking back on it, I can compare to how I felt then, which was rundown, grumpy. I couldn't remember anything. I mean, it was just awful. And I don't know if anyone else who had went through that time period uh, kind of connected the dots. But if you're not eating fat, like none of us ate fat in the 90s. <laughs> and when we went into the 2000s or around that time, 
we're all horribly vitamin D deficient. So vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. So if you don't have fat, you don't absorb certain nutrients. So that that kind of furthers the deficiencies and, and all the conditions that can derive from that. So um, so yeah, that's kind of been my my journey into nutrition. And, and it's just been an awesome ride. And I am a I'm a PERMA student. I am always learning and because nutrition is always changing and, and things that they're connecting uh, nutrients to and deficiencies to, it's just fascinating. So there's always more information to learn with it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, what I've learned a lot of is through personal experience too. And like you said, like you were so run down and and feeling so different when you were on that low fat, no fat, like everything like that. Like you can feel the difference when you're fueling your body differently. And I think that's been the biggest kind of like epiphany for me. I'm like, whoa, if I can change what I'm eating and how I'm feeling my body and I feel like this, like why would I not want to continue to do that? It's such a simple, like to me, I would say like it's such a simple change. Like, you know, you're already controlling what you are eating, you know what you're buying and and having for your meals and such. So if you can kind of make those simple changes in order to, you know, benefit you and and help as much as you can in, in that aspect, I say like, why not? Also, like how you were saying, like, that's what the media was kind of feeding you and all these fad diets and you hear this and you hear that and you hear, oh, this person dropped like, 10 pounds in a week because they did this and this. And then so people like jump on that and they try to do these like quick, simple fixes. And, you know, how you were saying too, with the the habits and, and getting that in check, like how much have you seen that be a benefit for your clients as far as improving their nutrition? So habits are the thing that I think a lot of people brush to the side. And, um, and really everything, if you think about it, everything is a habit, everything, everything is learned and everything is a habit and all habits are learned and everything is a habit. So everything can be changed in one way or another. Um, but in terms of food, we have to always remember that food is deeply cultural. There's a lot of different aspects to how people learn to eat, what the dynamic was in their household around food. If you grew up in a house where food was scarce, like a food scarcity, that that kind of mindset can carry with you as you get older, as you raise your children, it can be passed along, it can be very generational. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot with clients um, is the fact that many of our grandparents or parents even were a part of the uh, Great Depression. So at that point, there were, th that was the time food was scarce. That was a very big reality for many people. So they grew up eating whatever they had available and they didn't really complain about it because that was the mindset. So when you grow up that way and you raise your children around that way, that's where this whole aspect of the clean your plate club came from is parents grew up with that or grandparents grew up with that and instilled that into the next generation because that was the mindset. So it can go a lot deeper than just, oh, make sure you eat your veggies and make sure you have your bottle of water, whatever. There's so much more to that. It goes way deeper. And that that is a big aspect that when people go on these diets and these fad diets and all of that, they don't necessarily factor that in. So if you're not addressing the underlying behavioral and emotional connections that you have developed 
throughout your childhood and throughout your life. Um, if you don't address those, they're always going to be there and you're always going to fall back to that. And that's where people tend to blame themselves. And my most hated phrase, willpower, all of that is just, it's a load of crap because it, um, it, it stems deeper than that. It's way deeper. It's generational. It's familial. It's cultural. Even it, it goes so much more in depth than just, did you restrict your calories enough today? So, um, you know, in terms of habits, it's, it's hard to, to kind of pinpoint exactly. Like, I get a lot like, well, what's a good habit? What's a good routine I should be in? And unless we dive deeper, I don't, I can't tell you that off the top of my head. We have to figure that out. So. But yeah, I mean, I love how you were saying, you know, it also is that generational tie in there and traditions that you have. If there's specific ways that your family is used to eating, I know, I mean, me growing up, we were very much like takeout driven. It was like Chinese or pizza almost every night, like at least once a week. Like that's just like something that we did. Like, you know, my my dad like working late or just like working in general, and, you know, just like, hey, what do you guys want to eat? Or, you know, it was just like pasta, pasta, like so much like pasta driven and stuff like that. And and so like it was hard to then kind of navigate and switch to finding my own sense of what I wanted to eat. And um, so, you know, that was like a big switch. And then, you know, you also got to think like, family parties or gatherings, things like that. If you're used to having things set up a specific way, it's very hard to like go to that family event and avoid all of those kind of foods that are set up and things like that. And like I've learned for myself, I guess like try not to restrict like during those scenarios, you know, if you know that you're going to a party that like there's going to be stuff or you know that you're going to like indulge in in whatever, like don't kind of restrict yourself because then you're going to constantly be, I guess, like craving it, wanting it, things like that. And instead, just try to be more mindful of like, okay, like what is this that I'm eating? Like, how is it going to make me feel if I do eat it? And things like that. So I guess what do you kind of like recommend or help people that are dealing with those cultural traditions and everything of that sense? Yeah. So a couple of things with that. So one, I think what you were kind of alluding to was your foundation, what your what you always fall back to. We all have a, a set food foundation. And those foundational habits is what we always reflect back on as normal. So for me growing up, uh, we always had a vegetable with dinner. So when people didn't have vegetables with dinner, I was like, that's weird. <laughs> like you guys don't have veggies with dinner, but I mean, a lot of people don't have veggies with dinner. And, um, to, but, but that just, that just shows, were we perfect eaters? No. Is anybody? No. But for us, like that, that one little habit was foundational for me. And that's how I've now passed that along to my kids. Like sometimes we'll have one or two veggies with dinner, you know, simple things like that, that can turn into really good beneficial habits. Um, so with people who have the foundational habits that are more maybe not benefiting their health currently, like if you are still like in the fast food kind of habit of I get, you know, fast food for lunch every day or what have you. Yes, that's a habit. Yes, you can change it. Yes, may, that might be your foundation right now, but you can work on building a new foundation. So that's a lot of what I do with people is I help to kind of break apart their current habits and in, in the ones that they don't want anymore. Um, because it's not about what I think somebody should have. It's not about 
me telling them what they need to do. It's about what do you want? Like, what do you want? What kind of habits do you want that are going to benefit you and and help heal up some of their symptoms that you're having and all of that? Um, But how do we get there then? So it's one thing to be like, I think you should eat this way or you want to eat this way. But until you enforce those solid foundational habits and ingrain them in as your normal, it, it likely won't stick. So um, in terms of like the the holiday aspect of things and, and going to parties and going to stuff like that is life. We all have that. We The holidays are coming up in a few months. Like we're we're all a part of some of those things where we have whatever your family traditions are. So I am one that I don't restrict anything. I don't think unless you are allergic to a food, um, even then I'm like, how allergic are you? <laughs> like, what's what's the response here? Like, are you good? Is your throat going to swell up? And let's avoid that. But, um, but I I really don't think that any foods need to necessarily be restricted completely. I think there's usually a place for most things. Um, but in terms of how you're feeling, what your personal goals are, um, and and kind of some of the things that you want out of your nutrition, there are some strategies that we need to implement and and maybe put into place. But in terms of, you know, going into the holiday season or, or what have you, if your, if your foundation is to have certain foods on Thanksgiving or th- certain foods in December, whatever holidays you celebrate, have them, you know, like you don't need to restrict that. And, and the, I think what, what we tend to associate with some of those foods are the guilt, the shame, and the I shoulds or shouldn'ts. And the guilt and shame is something that we place on ourselves. That is just a, that is a human trait that is probably not ideal. <laughs> so you know that you you look outside at a squirrel and they're not going, oh my gosh, there's another acorn. I probably should not eat that. Oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You know, like they don't care. It's, it's food. Food is food. It's, it's energy. It's fuel. So if we can kind of start thinking about it a little bit more along the way, the shame and the guilt has been placed on us or those thoughts have been associated with certain foods. That's a human trait. That's not uh, something that we necessarily need. And that's something that we can put down at any point. But sometimes it just needs some reinforcement of certain new habits and new thought patterns to help us do that. So um, that was kind of a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> what would you say is a typical, I guess, time frame for incorporating a new habit? Like if we're looking to switch one thing or incorporate a new habit into our lifestyle, how long do you generally give for that? Or do you typically see somebody to really start actually implementing that habit and making it something that's going to be concrete and stay with them for a long period of time? Yeah. So with habits, I think a lot of us are familiar with like the 21 days to build a habit type of thing. And actually, I just I heard some uh, really interesting reviews and research on the fact that that's not true. <laughs> like, they don't know where like a lot of, of neuroscientists and stuff, they don't know where that number came from. So um, it's kind of interesting that that's kind of the, the norm, but that's not necessarily true in science's eyes. So there's a few things you need in order to build a habit and everyone's going to be a little bit different depending on what elements of this that they have. So for some, um, if your motivation to change something is extremely high, for example, I used to work with a tobacco user who got the diagnosis of lung cancer and he quit very quickly after that. Um, so that motivation was high and motivation, I think 
can even be broken down further into it's not necessarily like, yeah, I just want to lose weight. I just want to look better, whatever. That's not a motivation. That's not a high enough motivation. Um, You need something that is so much more important than the act or the behavior that you're doing that it's going to drive you to do the new thing. So humans in, in our brains, our brains need a reward in order to continue to do something. Now, sometimes that reward is like in terms of change, you might think like, oh, I really should go out and exercise. I know it's good for me. I know I'll benefit from it. But the reward is actually if I don't, though, (laughs) then I don't I'm not going to fail or I'm not going to let myself down or whatever. So the reward is actually not changing. That is a bigger reward than making the change. So sometimes rewards can be a little bit tricky in how we perceive them and how and what we're actually getting from them. Um, But that is something we absolutely need a reward and something that's going to be more rewarding than the act that we're currently doing. Um, also you need triggers or reminders, something that is going to, especially in the beginning of a new habit, you have got to have things in place where you're going to be prompted to do the habit that you're trying to switch to, or, or stop doing the habit that you're trying to eliminate. This, I think is the biggest thing. One of the biggest things that we overlook because we're like, yeah, I want to get out and go for a walk. Okay. We are on autopilot most of the day. I mean, our thoughts are on autopilot a lot of the times. Our actions are on autopilot. What we grab to eat is on autopilot. Like a lot of that. And that's just a survival thing. Our brain doesn't want to exert more energy than we need. So it puts it on autopilot. So if you're trying to incorporate something that's new, that is going to take more energy and more thought, we have to remind ourselves to do it because our brain's natural reaction is to go back to autopilot where it doesn't have to think and do as much. Um, so triggers and, and and prompts and things that will remind you that, oh, hey, yeah, we're eating vegetables with dinner now. I should, you know, I'm going to put the veggies right in front of me in the fridge, or I'm going to put them on my meal plan, or I'm going to take pictures, whatever, put it on your phone as a reminder, any and as many reminders as you can think of to enforce the new activity is going to be beneficial for you reminder or that's where accountability partners come in or accountability coaches come in handy is because they will keep it in the forefront of your mind so it doesn't go on autopilot and you're going to ingrain that into the norm eventually your brain and that part of your brain that puts things on autopilot so you don't have to think about them you can train your brain to put anything on autopilot but it's if you have to enforce that and repeat the behavior enough where it's going to eventually sink in that it's on autopilot Um, So repetition is one of the biggest things too. You cannot form a habit just by doing something once. It's, it's impossible. That's not a habit. (laughs) That's an action. It's not a habit. So you absolutely have to repeat things over and over and over and over again, which is where uh, the question that you originally asked, like how many, how many days, how long does it take? And that kind of just depends. It truly does on, on the person, on what they're trying to change on, you know, what kind of support they have around them. Um, All of those things kind of factor in. Um, I've heard the number 66 days be thrown out quite a bit. I don't know the science or the research behind that, but who's to say that if you do something for 65 days, it's not going to turn into a habit. You know, like, I don't know where these magic numbers are coming from. To be honest, I think a lot of times those things are just averages anyways, but, uh, but I haven't done as much research on that number, but that was one that I just heard. So I think it really depends on the person. And, and if you're if there is a habit that you're trying to change or incorporate, kind of putting some of those other factors into play, like the, the repetition, the accountability, the support and reminders and all of that is going to be uh, really important for you. 
Awesome. So what have been kind of like your personal like motivation? What has really allowed you to stay on on your track and your your journey? And how has that shifted, I guess, like in becoming a mother? And like, how has that shifted with each child? Yeah, I think our our expectations of ourselves, or at least my expectations of myself, has definitely changed with each child. Um, I think in the beginning, that first child, I was like, oh, I could do this. I could do it all, whatever. And then as like the more and more children I had, I'm just like, what's that? You want to help? Sure. Take a kid. <laughs> I'm like, I'm definitely more accepting of support and help. Um, and I think I really, really encourage any new mom and no matter what stage you're at, I mean, please just take the help. Like people are begging to give you help. Take the help. It's so important. And I swear, it doesn't make you any less of a mom. Uh, it, it actually makes you a better mom, in my opinion, in terms of what I experienced, because I was like, I wasn't as stressed out. I wasn't as like, thinking I had to do it all and all of that. Um, and I think too, a big thing is the comparison to other moms. I mean, oh my gosh, I had to actually stop following certain people on like Instagram and social media just because I'm like, that's not real. <laughs> I know that's not real. Why are you portraying that you're doing all these things with an infant? Like, I know you're not like, just stop. I think really, and that was something that I was doing a lot. I think as, as humans, we, when we're trying to learn something new, a good way of learning is uh, mimicking. It's a good, you know, we tend to copy what we see. You know, you want to make an amazing vegan dinner or something like that. You're probably going to go to Pinterest and find somebody who's already figured out a recipe that you don't have to, you know, think through. Um, but, and that's just, I, I think as, as new moms, we tend to like look at other moms like, well, what is she doing? What, what happened over there? Like what, what happened with her? And she, how many kids does she have? And she's still doing that. And she looks like that. And she's saying these things and she has energy, you know, we get into this whirlwind of comparison and it's, it's really important that we not, it's really important that you stop comparing yourself to other moms. Cause you really don't know what they're going through. You really don't know how they're truly feeling. And a lot, especially what you see on social media is just a show. And, uh, which is, that's another thing that I changed as I kept having kids. I, like, I was like, you know what? I want people to see this, <laughs> this nightmare that I'm experiencing today. And I put it on social media. I'm like, yeah, look at my kid. She's having a freak out right now over her blanket. Like it happens. And, and I think when you can see and you can surround yourselves with other moms that are kind of sharing some of those, like looking back on now, funny moments, but in the time you're like, oh, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm so upset right now. Um, having those kind of outlets and having those that that kind of comic relief can really be helpful <laughs> when you're at your wits end and you're like I'm terrible you know I remember having some conversations and texting a, a really close friend and um I remember being like I yelled at her today and my friend is just like she probably deserved it <laughs> you know so I mean obviously you know certain certain things you can kind of laugh off now but uh, but really surrounding yourselves with the parents who are going to be real, the moms or the dads that are going to be real with you and just accept you for at the stage you're at and not try to, to, to make it better for you just to be there for you. I think that that's an even bigger thing is I'm, I got to a point where I was so tired of people just telling me, oh, you're going to, you're going to miss those days. It's like, don't tell me that when I'm in these days. That's really, really hard to hear right now because that makes me feel guilty that I'm not like thinking I should be more happy at this point. Um, so I think really surrounding yourselves with the, the best uh, the best environment that you need is going to be cr crucial and finding those people, finding the people that you can connect with and you can just be like, I had a crap day. I, I said this, I shouldn't have done that. And you know, here I am. 
So, you know, if you have some friends, it's like, okay, yeah, pour yourself a glass of wine or, you know, go out for a walk or do whatever you need to do to just kind of get in a better state. Um, we all really need that. And you don't have to do it alone. You absolutely don't. There's so many good groups and resources out there, especially uh, on social media or Facebook or um, just within your community. I'm sure that uh, you can connect with and kind of get that support. Uh, but personally speaking, I mean, yeah, those are things that you just pick up along the way. And that's just kind of been my experience is, is to not take things as personally and as deeply as I once was. And that's just been a huge relief for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think finding a community and finding people that you can really relate to and are sharing those like similar goals. And you can really just have that person that maybe to like text or call whenever and, and say, you know, this is not going the way I thought it was, or like you were saying, like those expectations of having it all put together. I think when we first enter motherhood, like we have all these grand expectations of, you know, like what this is going to look like and where this is going to go and how this is going to pan out. And, you know, then the baby comes and there's just things that pop up that you never even knew were possibilities. And now you're trying to deal with that or, or flip things around and, and you're trying to manage it all. And I definitely agree, you know, like asking for more help and finding the support that you're, that you need and not being, you know, ashamed of that or feel guilty for doing that. It's not making you any less of a mom. It's not making you, you know, any less of a person. It's you're using your resources to the fullest. And I think that's amazing. And, you know, like you were saying too, I think mimicking is great, but comparison is is a rabbit hole for disaster. You know, we can seek people that, you know, we want to be more like, or, you know, like you said, like finding recipes, like maybe you want to incorporate certain things into your nutrition plan or things like that, you know, but when you start comparing like, oh, how are they having a home cooked meal every day? Or, or how are they, you know, packing their cute little lunches or whatnot? Or how are they keeping up with all of this? I think that's when, you know, you're not using those people as a way to be resourceful. You're, you're comparing and, and it's just gonna, you know, dive yourself deeper into a route that necessarily isn't going to benefit you. So I definitely think that's something to be aware of. And it is difficult, like in those early months, years and such to really get out of that and really find your own way through motherhood and what that means and what all entails. So I guess like you were talking also about um, different triggers or reminders that, you know, to set up in order to kind of make that autopilot more flawless. What are some things that you set up that kind of you felt has helped you in motherhood or what have you seen, you know, either with other moms that you know or clients that you have have really helped them establish things to be more flawless in that progression? Yeah, I think it really depends on the type of uh, person that you are. So I have a few clients that are very visual, like they need big graphics, they need checklists, they need images of, you know, they need a sticker chart, they need those types of things that can just be um, a reminder for them. So like for one client, uh, she her goal was to um, walk in a 5k. And she was starting at 
baseline. So, um, so we put together a sticker chart for her <laughs> and like, she's like, this looks like potty training. I'm like, you're not, you're training for a 5k. Um, but that was what she needed because when she saw she, cause it's so easy to think like, eh, yeah, I went for a few walks this week. I don't know. I kind I guess I hit my goal versus seeing it day by day by day by day on the calendar where it's sticker after sticker or check mark after check mark. Um, and that's, that can be really rewarding. Be like, well, actually I did. I met, I went for a walk six times last week. That's really great. And, and it's easy to, first of all, the days all blend together, at least in my world. <laughs> I'm like, what day is it today? Um, so it's really kind of easy to forget all the good things that you actually are doing. So seeing it on a calendar, seeing it on like a, a chart in some way um, is really helpful for certain people who are very visual. Um, and she found it rewarding to on the days where she didn't really want to get out for the walk, she's like, oh, but then then there's going to be a big old gap on my calendar and I want that sticker there. So she went out for her walk. So that was exactly, that's another example of just how those reminders can be motivating as well. I mean, other things in terms of like meal planning and, and getting in a good groove with that, it's it's the reminders could just be, it's a day of the week. It's a Sunday. You set a reminder on your phone. Uh, you know, it goes off and says meal plan or Pinterest time or whatever, wherever you get your recipes from. And you really just carve out that 10 minutes to plan your dinners for the week. And it doesn't have to be a lot of time. Um, kind of taking that time um, aspect out of it because it, that can be a barrier. You can be like, oh my gosh, to meal plan for the entire week, that's going to take me so long. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't need to. It takes a 10 minutes, like just swap in a few things, pull a few recipes that you have saved, boom, you're done. Make your grocery list, out you go. Um, so really kind of being realistic about the expectation around the task that you're trying to incorporate. Um, that can be another, another thing. Personally speaking, I don't know if I have triggers. There's not something I'm actively working on right now. Really. I don't think I used to train for marathons. I'm not doing that anymore. So yeah, there's not really something I'm actively doing, but when I am, I mean, there, I take, I take part in as many triggers and reminders as I can. I'm a big one for checklists. So I have like a big old, a notepad on my desk that has like checklists and um, I, I go and try and fill that out the night before. So I know what I'm doing the day of, um, I didn't, you know, apps are always good. There's tons of like the to-do app or task apps and, and reminders like that, that you could do a search for that um, everyone has a preference on how things look and how they are. But um, I, I say as many, if, if technology is your game, use technology, find as many apps as you can. If you're more of a paper and pencil type of person, use that. Find yourself a good to-do list or a journal or anything like that that's going to be motivating for you. Um, some people like things like super pretty and like all decorative and sparkly and all that. I'm just like, whatever, just write it down. <laughs> that's what that's how that's how I do best. But um, I think you have to understand yourself and just carve out that time for yourself. It's that's the best thing you can do for self-care is to get your feel like you're getting yourself organized like that. I love that. Do you have any other final, you know, words of advice or tips for new moms? If you can recall back to when you were a first time mom or even just, you know, the incorporation of a new baby for your last child and how that dynamic really was. And, you know, we were talking about support and things like that. But, you know, what do you think was most helpful and what do you kind of wish you knew? before? I think if I were to give anyone some advice, I would say, try and look at the situation without adding 
feelings and emotions to it. So for example, it's really easy when you have a new baby, especially if you have older children, if you, um, you have the older children start to regress in things. It's so common for, for kids, especially new kids that are new to siblinghood. Like if they, they start to regress a little bit um, and knowing that it's really easy to attach a feeling or a thought or like, I'm a bad parent. I didn't do, I didn't give them enough support. I didn't, you know, it's really easy to go down that rabbit hole. And that's not the case. That's not true. There's no supporting evidence that shows that that's true. Um, you know, really taking it for what it is and and understanding that those behaviors are completely, completely normal and it's a phase. And there are things that you can do to kind of progress through the phase and offer the, the new siblings as much support as, as you can. Um, but I think as, as best as you cannot attach your self-image to things that happen. Sometimes things just happen and it's really easy to go down that rabbit hole. And, and all of a sudden you're having all these negative thoughts on around yourself. Um, the second thing, especially if you're a new mom, whether you have other children or not, know that postpartum anxiety is sometimes even more prevalent than postpartum depression. And that would be those, those moments when you're like, like I used to have these thoughts of like in the middle of the night where if my car is sinking, how am I going to unbuckle all the car seats? Like I would have to go through and like plan that out in order to be like, okay with the situation that didn't happen. So like some of those ruminating thoughts, um, would I label myself as postpartum depression? No, but postpartum anxiety, I didn't know that that was a thing. And this was my, my youngest is three. So back thinking back three years ago, it's like, oh yeah, I definitely had that. So really, really being aware of your new normal and what feelings and thoughts you have around what's going on. Uh, and then really talking to people about that, because that's something that shouldn't really, you don't have to just suffer in silence with that. I think you really need to just seek out any resources that you can and, and find that support because you, uh, you can get through that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you talked about the car seats, that totally made me remember, like we were on a on a road trip and going over a bridge and that thought crossed my mind. I said, how in the world, you know, cause they tell you like have those things that can cut through the seatbelt real quick or whatever, or how to break through a window. And I was like, how in the world do you get your child out? And then if you have more than one, or, you know, even if like you and your partner are in the car and, you know, you each have a kid or you have three, now you guys have four, you know, like how are you going to get all four kids out swiftly, quickly? Like, it's like those kinds of things that just like cross your mind. You're like, why am I thinking about this? Like, where did this come from? And like, it does just like, stir up and and bring up a lot of like emotions and feelings and stuff and it's it's a whole new aspect when now you're caring for somebody other than just yourself and like having those responsibilities yeah and then I always thought like well what if I unbuckle his car seat before hers is she gonna like feel like I don't love her more like you know you go through all these like silly little scenarios. And the more you cannot try and do that, the better, obviously. But, um, but I mean, that all just comes from the underlying root of survival. Like you just want to survive. You want your kids to survive. It's fear. It's all those emotions. And um, especially after having a baby, like your hormones are all over the place. Your cortisol is high. Um, different nutrients are depleted, of course. And when your cortisol is high and different nutrients are low, that can wreak havoc on the thoughts that you have, the emotions that you feel, like all of that stuff too. So 
um, there is always a reason that we're having some of those thoughts and it's, it has no reflection on you as a person. It's just maybe uh, looking into other like ways to support yourself with food and, and patterns and food patterns. And are you eating enough? Most likely not. Most new moms are not eating enough. Um, so really kind of going down that route and, and know that like, it's not, it's not just you. I, I hear so many moms go, I think I'm just going crazy. It's like, no, you're just nutrient deprived. And sleep deprived. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree. I really do feel like how we were saying before, like nutrition has so much to do with like your overall, how you're thinking, how you're feeling, you know, what's going on. And it might just be a simple little, little thing that you're not really aware of that you could be deficient in. And um, I know that we had been talking before about picky eaters and things like that. And you had mentioned, you know, that dynamic of bringing another baby in and that might change how our children are eating. What could you kind of, you know, speak on that about? Yeah, picky eaters is a topic that um, I, I love talking about. Honestly, it's it's so when I did a deep dive into some of the research around that, it was really just gratifying knowing that this is normal. It's totally normal. Um, so I mean, it really depends on the age of the child too. When the child has this complete disruption in their normal world, you know, back to talking about foundation and what's normal, um, especially when they're a tiny person, they're a two or three, four year old sometimes, or even younger sometimes. Um, that's really, that's a lot for them to process and their, their sense of normal is no longer, I mean, neither is yours as the new mom, but, but for them, um, they don't yet have those skills to adapt to certain things. Um, so when, when things are out of control, you tend to seek what you can control. So for a child, they have very little control in their own world. I mean, we, we dress them, we bathe them, we give them what the foods to eat. You know, we, we pretty much are doing all that. Now there's a whole other topic we could have about like self-sufficient children and all of that stuff. But in, in terms of like, from their perspective, they have very little control over their environment and what happens in their lives. And when you do give them the control, usually the one thing that they can control is how much they're eating what or what if they're going to eat and and you know some of those things around food so you obviously control what you're eating or what they're having but they control if they're going to eat it and how much they're going to eat so they tend to gravitate or i mean anybody really when they feel out of control gravitates towards what they can control and for the kids little little tiny people who are having their world kind of rocked um they might you might see an increase in their pickiness and the fact that they maybe aren't eating the foods that they normally would devour, all while the fact that they're going through growth spurts and growth, you know, non-growth spurts. So they naturally may eat more at certain times and not eat as much at certain times. So there's a really good book actually called Child of Mine um, by Ellen Satter. And um, I can give you that information if you want to post it. But it talks of a lot about this concept of control over food. So what she breaks down in the book is that you as the parent control the what is served, the when you have it, uh, and the where, like the setting of the food. Um, but the child will determine the whether or not they're going to eat it and the how, the how much. So that gives them control um, and that can really be uh, beneficial. So like in the terms, like, like you had mentioned, if, if, if kids um, kind of resort back to maybe not healthy foods, well, that if you can kind of stay in your lane of what is served, when and where, and then they stay in their lane of if they're going to eat it and how much they're going to eat. 
giving them that control over, hey, we're having, I don't know, spaghetti for dinner tonight. And they say, I don't want spaghetti. I'm not going to have spaghetti. That's fine. You don't have to have it then. And you don't have to pick, you don't have to have the food fights and the food battles and all of that, which doesn't factor, doesn't benefit anybody to have that. Um, that you give them that control and just say, you know, if you choose, this is what we're having, we're having it now. If you choose not to have that, that's fine. Um, you know, kids, I'm still a big, a lot, some people don't want to have their kids eat after dinner, especially if they didn't eat dinner, <laughs> but, um, I'm kids at that age, especially the younger, like the, the preschool age kids, they usually need like a second dinner or a, a hearty snack, whether you want to call it dessert or not. So if, if you, if they choose not to have dinner, then you can say, that's fine. Next time food will be available for you will be, you know, in an hour or whatever, but this is your choice. This is the choice at that time. So maybe it's going to be a healthier snack, like an apple with peanut butter, or it's going to be celery sticks with almond butter, or it's going to be the spaghetti again, or, or what have you. But like, just simply saying like, okay, yeah, you don't have to have dinner. That's fine. And I'm just going to give you M&Ms later. Like, no, that's not, that's not the point. You as the parent get to decide the what is served. And if they say, no, I don't want that either. That's their choice. They will learn that they will not starve to death. They will not starve to death. They will not have all these negative growth reactions if they don't have one dinner at night. Like, but they need to learn the fact that these are the roles and, and you as the parent decide the what and the when and the where, and they as the child decide how much they're going to have and whether or not they're going to eat it. Um, so kind of developing that kind of mindset. And, and that also goes to the point that do not become a short order cook. Don't go down that slippery slope because that will be the norm for them. Talking about foundational food habits, they will just know that, oh yeah, my mom will just make me whatever I want. So unless you want to be, unless you really want to be a short order cook, um, don't set that as like the norm from the beginning. I think I, I'm a big fan too. As soon as kids can eat and it's safe for them to eat foods, feed them whatever you're having. If it were up to me, there would not be kid menus that in other cultures, that's not a thing. So it, in our culture, it is. And it's usually like fried chicken nuggets and, you know, all the, the burgers and all that stuff. It's like, no, um, just if you're having, I don't know, a chicken salad, serve that to everybody. They will learn to like certain things. They will learn that they don't like certain things. And that's okay, too. But the second you start forcing them to eat more or, um, you know, in, enforcing certain things, then that's going to start this food battle that is going to be years of, of fighting around that. Um, and really knowing, too, that all the, the parents that I've worked with, with um, picky eaters, helping them realize that the source of the stress around eating is always fear. It's always, always, always fear from the parent. It's fear that maybe your kid isn't growing enough. They're not getting enough food. It could be fear that, you know, maybe there's allergies involved or maybe there's something else going on or, you know, there it's a number of things, but it can always be kind of traced back to fear. And if you can kind of reflect on, well, what am I truly worried about? What am I so afraid of? If it is the growth factor, I have a story that I've actually shared a few times, um, but I can share it quick now. So my son, when he was four months old, he had like extreme eczema, extreme, extreme, extreme. Um, and he was breastfed. So I was just like, what the heck? And I took him to the doctor. She's like, he was in the, like the fifth, fifth percentile for weight. So he was little, he was a little guy. And of course I was like, Oh my goodness. Like he, 
he needs it. You know, I was, I was freaking out. Luckily he was my fourth child. So I was like, Oh, growth charts though. Um, but so she, you know, when he was four months old, she was like, yeah, start him on solids. Go ahead and start him on solids. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm a nutritionist. I'm like, I surely know that that's not good information. Um, but she was like, yeah, yeah, we gotta, we gotta fatten him up. Like that's her phrasing. We gotta fatten him up. And I was like, okay. And I was like, well, I was kind of thinking maybe his gut's a little sensitive because, you know, he's got eczema and it's really bad. And she's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about maybe like taking out gluten, taking out some dairy in my diet and, and all that. She's like, yeah, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Just go ahead and fatten him up. I was like, okay. So I left there and I was just like, what? No. So anyway, so we, um, I took him and, and I, you know, I, t I removed some of the, the, common irritants that I know cause gut issues in, in babies. And I removed some of that from my diet. By the next time that we went in, he was like about six months old or something like that. Um, in the meantime, too, I'd also given him a probiotic to help heal his gut up a little bit and all that. His eczema cleared up. Um, so then when we went back a few months later, he, his growth was in, he was back up to like the 20th percentile for weight then. So he went from like the fifth to the 20th in a couple of months. And she was like, oh, great. What did you, st where did you start feeding him? I'm like, breast milk. <laughs> like, is this me? <laughs> and she was like, Oh, wow. Okay. But really like, you know, as a clinical nutritionist, knowing what went on in that is the fact that his gut and baby, a lot of babies have leaky gut, immature guts, their gut bacteria and the microbiome just are not developed yet. They're immature. Um, and, and any exposure to certain things in his case, it might've come from my milk in the, in the form of dairy or maybe some gluten or something else. Um, but that irritated his gut enough where it, every nutrient he was getting, he was not absorbing because his gut was leaky and it was, it wasn't, that's where all the nutrients are absorbed in, is in the gut. And, um, his was, wasn't healthy. So the fact that we could kind of heal that up a little bit and help him to absorb the nutrients, it wasn't the fact that I needed to fill him with sugary junk. It was the fact that we needed to help heal his gut so he could absorb the nutrients that he needed. Um, and that helped him thrive again. So in our situation, that's how that happened. I know I fully recognize that that's not the case for every failure to thrive child and all that. There's a lot of things that can be going on there, but, but that's just an, a, that's just an example that kind of says like, there's other things that could be going on. If your child is not eating, or if you feel like they should be eating more and they're not look deeper, there's probably, there's always a root cause that is the cause of that. So maybe it is stress from the environment of a new baby. Maybe it is a divorce. Maybe it is a death in the family or something else in their environment is changing. We see a lot of picky eaters also um, come about when there's another milestone. Like if someone goes potty training or if they go to a new daycare classroom or um, they go to a big kid bed and now the, their crib is now used for the new baby and they're in a big kid bed. Like those things are happy changes sometimes, but they can also be enough changes where they're like, hold on, wait a minute. I got to I got to recalibrate here. I got to get some control in my life. There's too much changing. So always, always, always look deeper if there is a picky eater um, and don't force things. Just kind of just kind of relax about it. Know that they are the ultimate intuitive eaters and they will eat when they are hungry. There's there's very few times where a child will actually starve themselves on purpose um, for a long term. So just just keep offering them a variety of the proteins and the fats and the veggies and and all the things that um, I'm sure you all are doing anyways. But just provide that for them and, and just um, know that there's probably a, a different cause. It's not just the fact that they're, you know, labeled as a picky eater. I absolutely love that. I love like how you shared your story too, with 
when uh, your kid was four months old. And, you know, I think the same, same sort of thing had happened to me. Like we had gone into the pediatrician and Rosie was always low on the, the chart. And um, I was like, well, she's following her own trend though. Like the other doctor said that she's on her own trend and she's doing great and things like that. And they were trying to like encourage the, you know, introducing solids before six months and just to bump her up and things like that, or, or just like increasing how much. And I was even kind of getting some kickback from her daycare. Like, Hey, we've noticed that the other babies are already on rice cereal or they're getting more milk in their bottles and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, like formula has a lot more ounces than my breast milk, but like, it's all, it's all there. It's all, it's all okay. Like she's doing fine. And it was very like discouraging to hear that from a doctor specifically. And then like, also just to be like having, people give me like this advice of like, oh, well, I did this for my kid or that. And I had like set out a very specific kind of, I guess, routine of, of how I wanted her to progress into solids and things and, and how long I wanted her to stay on strictly just breast milk. So it was it was challenging to kind of, I guess, hold our own and really like stand by what we want it to do. And I mean, like now she's perfectly fine. She's even like measuring taller compared to like what they would predict for me and my husband to produce. <laughs> and like, like she's she's right on par and everything. And she did, she did, you know, like strictly breast milk six months. And then like we started to just like introduce a few things. And then not until one did she really start to like wean off the breast milk and really start eating more, more solids and everything. So, you know, I think going through all of that and like having to really stand for what what you want for your children is challenging and again like that goes back to finding community and finding people that agree with what you're doing to to really like support and solidify like your idea for for what you want to be doing for for your family so yeah and I mean especially like you and I are both in the nutrition space and we even had that happen to us in in the pediatric or pediatrician's office so um, just know that it's it's not how much you do or don't know it's the fact that you're hearing this information from uh, potentially a source who doesn't have a lot of training in that I think that's one thing that a lot of people kind of miss is that um, even the most well-intended doctors and, and, um, pediatricians and everything, they don't go through nutrition school. They have maybe one or two courses on nutrition and that's usually it. And that's coming from a few friends who are physicians. <laughs> They're like, I don't go through that training. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here, you know, but it's okay if it's okay to question, um, their, their advice. It's okay. If you're like, that doesn't sound right. I feel like I've heard not to feed a child solid foods before six months. It's okay to question that and do some research on your own. You don't have to just blindly follow anybody's advice, really, if it doesn't feel like it aligns with what you had in mind. Um, I, I really, really want people to feel empowered to make the choices that they feel are the best for their own children. Of course, seek out you know, proper information sources and things like that. But just know that, um, that pediatricians aren't always right, even though they have the best intentions and they're 
crazy smart in other aspects, but nutrition is one thing that they kind of just go from sometimes old guidelines that aren't necessarily the best for each kid's situation. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and really sharing your knowledge and everything that you've been going through on your nutrition journey and being a mom. So I really appreciate you coming and talking to us today. Yay, absolutely. I'm so thankful for uh, for you reaching out and I'm so glad to have been here and shared a little bit about everything. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Could you let us know like how we can reach you, how we can get in contact with you and everything like that? Yeah, so I am on social media at Food Factor Nutrition. I'm on that Facebook, um, and that's also my handle for Instagram, although I'm not as active on Instagram because I just don't get it. Um, And then uh, my website is foodfactornutrition.com. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Well, this wraps up yet another episode of Entering Motherhood. I hope that you have found this episode helpful. And if you liked it, please share it with others who might also benefit from this information. If there's anything that you'd like to know more about, or maybe you know someone who'd like to be on the show, please visit my website, enteringmotherhood.com. I'm so thrilled to be going on this journey with you and getting the amazing opportunity to help moms during this postpartum experience. You can also now find us on Instagram and Facebook at Entering Motherhood.